Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor and a pharmacist explain pharmacogenomics and the patients this new clinic may be able to help. So it's one way to kind of select the best drug for the patient at their specific dose. So that is, you know, it really is individualized medicine. And a pair of physical therapists talk about how balance disorders and dizziness can be treated. People come to see a vestibular therapist when they have dizziness. Could be balance challenges, but it can also be visual changes related to a dysfunction somewhere in the vestibular system. All that plus preparing your child for surgery and a visit from the Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, physical therapists will discuss how vestibular therapy can help patients who have balance disorders or dizziness. But first, a doctor and a pharmacist discuss how genetic variations can influence how medications work and how their new pharmacogenomics clinic can help. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Genetic variations have been shown to influence drug metabolism, the risk of adverse drug events, and the response of many drugs that are routinely prescribed to treat patients with a variety of conditions. And now, Upstate's Department of Neurology offers a pharmacogenomics clinic. Today, I'm speaking with two people from that clinic, Dr. Karen Albright, an Associate Professor of Neurology and of Pharmacology, and Danielle Del Vecchio, a clinical pharmacist in the Department of Neurology. I thank you both for making time to talk about this unique clinic. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Now, pharmacogenomics sounds like it's the sort of ultimate in individualized or personalized care because it's based on a patient's genes. Is that right? Yes. Um, I think, you know, most people share most DNA or genetics in common, but it's the few things that are different that make us the individuals that we are, and pharmacogenomics capitalizes on those genetic variations. Another word that is often used to describe the pharmacogenomics uh, discipline itself is precision medicine. So it's one way to kind of select the best drug for the patient at their specific dose. So that is, you know, it really is individualized medicine. So who is this clinic really designed to help? What types of patients do you attract? So I would say all patients we can help, patients who are on no medicines and patients who are on 10 or more or even more medicines than that, patients who have not many disease states that they're managing at all, and then patients who have several different complex disease states. This type of testing can really benefit any patient who is interested in helping providers essentially pick the right drug for them uh, first, rather than the typical trial and error method. person who has like a family member who has had adverse drug reactions, that individual might have more of a reason to be concerned that they might, right? I would agree with that. Um, I, would, I would add to what Danielle said. You know, we spend a lot of our time taking care of people who feel that they didn't have the appropriate response to a medication. Could be either them or someone in their family. Um, they feel that they had a strange reaction or an adverse drug reaction. And um, as you brought up, we definitely take the family history in terms of things that have happened with drugs, whether it's lack of response or a response that uh, might be viewed as a side effect. So, um, yes, we help people with, with both of those issues. And there's two different, really, categories of ways that we can help people. Um, it's more proactive or reactive. So the proactive strategy is doing pharmacogenomic testing before a patient is prescribed a certain drug and using those results to help select medication. And then reactively, we do pharmacogenomic testing to kind of help answer maybe why a patient had a side effect or 
why a drug didn't work for an individual patient. And doing that testing can, like I said, help figure out the reason for that and then help us decide appropriate next steps so that it doesn't happen again. How do you find patients or how do patients find you? I think one thing they can do is get their uh, primary care physician or primary care provider to refer them to the PGX clinic at Upstate Neurology. And the referral should be PGX clinic for genetic testing. So, so that will indicate to us that they wanna come to this clinic and they would like us to do a genetic panel of them to try to figure out which drugs at which doses might be the most appropriate, most effective, safest for that particular patient. So it sounds like the patient maybe should talk to their provider first and say, hey, maybe a referral to the pharmacogenomics clinic might be in order, right? Absolutely, yes. And we, we also take referrals from specialists and subspecialists. It's fairly common for Danielle and I to see people who um, maybe their cardiologist feels they need to be on a statin, but the first statin or first two statins they've tried, the, the patient didn't have a good response to that. So we'll get a referral from cardiology saying, help find this patient a statin that he or she can tolerate. Well, can you walk me through what a typical patient visit would be like once someone has an appointment? What can they expect when they get there? Absolutely. So the first visit, I see the patient with our nurse practitioner, Stephanie Loveless. And the purpose of the first visit is to get a detailed medication history. So we go through every medication that a patient is currently on, has been on in the past as well, and any medication that their family members have been on that they may have had trouble with. So we ask for details on how is each medication working for them? Is it effective? And then at the same time, are they having any side effects to their current medications? And we ask those same questions for medications that they've tried in the past. Have Can I tried... interrupt you for a second? Do, when you say medications, does that include vitamins and over-the-counter things that people may be taking? We do ask for details on that just to get a full comprehensive medication history. The, you know, the problem with pharmacogenomics testing is that we have strong level of uh, evidence for certain drugs, not all. So that's where it gets a little complicated with the vitamins. You know, we do a full medication history. We ask about those things because as a pharmacist, I'm not going to ignore certain medications and not talk to them about them if they, just because it doesn't have any pharmacogenomic data to support, you know, any kind of changes to, I'll still review their medications, answer any questions that they have about their medications. So it does include every single thing that they've they've been on. Just what we do with that information when we get the genetic results is different, essentially. So we do that for both their current medications, like I said, and medications that they've tried in the past. So they actually have a sit-down, face-to-face meeting with the pharmacist? Yes, myself and Stephanie, we do an in-person visit or telemedicine in the, in the light of COVID, and we We'll go through that full medication history. We will explain the what pharmacogenomic testing is and what the procedure is for that and how they may benefit from it. And then if they decide to go through with the testing, that's when we would do the blood draw essentially to submit to our lab to do that, that test. That's what I was going to ask. What is involved for the testing? Is it as simple as one blood sample? Usually, yes. And how soon do you get information back about that patient's, and and are you getting sort of their whole genome when you get the results back? Well, let me answer the second question first. Um, We are very specific to only genes with high levels of information, high level of evidence. Um, And so we often tell patients, you know, we're, we're not like 23 and me. We, we can't predict what diseases you might get in the future. We're really focused on genes that relate to drugs. And we're not Ancestry.com. We can't tell you who you are or aren't related to. But we're just focused on looking at the genotypes of specific genes that groups like PharmGKB and CPIC have said this is high level of evidence. They've issued guidelines for clinicians what they should do with this genetic information should it land in their lap. So um, I think that's one thing that we should 
we should mention. In terms of how long it takes for this information to get back, we have seen that vary with COVID, certainly, but we ask most people to come back and see us in at least six weeks. Yeah, six weeks sounds about right. Um, and that allows time for the necessary quality checks at the lab, and it also allows Danielle and I to go through. There's, there's two pieces to this. There's bioinformatics, which interprets the results, but then we interpret it by hand and double check. So we wanna make sure there aren't any errors. And we do a panel-based test. Some institutions do one single drug gene pair. And this panel-based test that we do tests for multiple genes, the genes with the highest level of evidence to support making pharmacogenomic changes. Um, what we do essentially looks at genes that are involved for the most part in drug transport and metabolism. Now, what that means is drugs get broken down in the body in a certain way. These genes code for enzymes that break down drugs in the body. And what we get with these results is either telling us if a patient is a normal metabolizer or they could be a poor or a rapid metabolizer. And using those, uh, those categories, you're then able to apply those results to individual drugs and to explain to a patient what that means for them. Does that put them at a higher risk of side effects with this certain medication? And because of that, is there an alternative that would be preferred? Or does this drug, is it more likely to not work for them because of how it's metabolized? And same thing, is there another drug that's more likely to work for them? Yeah, and I would add to that, you know, a classic example of what Danielle is talking about is a medication called clopidogrel or Plavix. And we know a little bit about a transporter and um, we get genetic information about this transporter. And this transporter literally has the ability to kick the Plavix back into the gut, therefore it comes out as waste. So Plavix is a prodrug. First it has to get absorbed. If you have a transporter kicking it back out, you won't absorb as much. That's not the end of it. Then you have to activate this drug. That's a different enzyme, different gene. If you don't have what you need, you can't activate it enough to actually inhibit platelets. So, you know, between Danielle and I, Plavix could be a great drug for her and not so great choice for me. And we don't know that by looking at someone, we actually have to do the panel. We have to genotype them. Well, I think this is fascinating, but I, I do want to ask you more about this. Uh, Plavix is a, a blood thinner, is that right? So uh, it, we, we term it an antiplatelet. It's in the broad category of blood thinners. Within blood thinners, you have drugs that work on platelets and then drugs that work on the coagulation or the blood clotting system. So Plavix or Clopidogrel works on platelets, so we call it an antiplatelet. So you could have a variety of patients, um, cardiac patients or peripheral vascular disease or stroke, people that are at higher risk for stroke. And if someone is taking Plavix and it, it may or may not be working for them, you guys could maybe figure out why that is. Correct. And the good news is there are so many medications available now. If we tell someone a medicine like clopidogrel is not the perfect medicine for them, we can often come up with several alternative medicines which would work just fine for that person. Let me ask you about people with high cholesterol who take statins. I know it can sometimes be challenging to get the dosing right. How can your clinic help these patients? So statins is a very large group of patients that we help with, patients who are taking statins. A lot of patients have come to us either saying that they are concerned about trying a statin again because they tried one in the past and experienced some, some adverse effects such as significant muscle aches and pains. And then we have other patients who have tried more than one statin and still have had problems. And then we have patients who have tried no statins but are concerned just based on what they've heard and you know things that they've kind of talked about with their provider that makes them hesitant to actually try a statin when they would significantly benefit from one. So what we can do with our genetic testing is kind of explain to patients, and this is what I tell everyone, uh, muscle aches and pains is a common expected side effect from statins. And with the pharmacogenomic testing, we can help kind of identify which medication they are more likely to um, kind of minimize the risk of those side effects. Some statins 
based on a patient's genetics, they might be at a higher risk of muscle aches and pains. And then other statins, once we get this testing confirmed, they'll be at a more standard risk of muscle aches and pains with statins. So we get this testing done to kind of identify which statins to avoid and which statins to pick from. Mm -hmm. In terms of dose, that's very patient-specific. That depends on their past medical history, their cardiovascular risk. So that's where the dosing comes in. But in terms of statin selection, that's where the pharmacogenomic testing can be beneficial. And, and this sort of goes back to what Danielle had said earlier about eliminating trial and error medicine. Uh, one of the statin patients that comes to mind came to us with a list of I can't take Crestor because it caused weight gain. I can't take this medicine because it caused muscle ache. I couldn't get out of bed. So we're literally working from a list of all available statins. We cross them off when the patient reports a side effect, and we cross them off if the genetics suggest that that won't be ideal. And even for someone who had tried several statins, we were able to find something that he could tolerate. And we started a low dose and work up, as Danielle said, depending on what their needs are and he's still successfully on that statin. The other patients, like those ones who haven't tried a statin yet, this genetic testing can help make them feel more confident in terms of the drug selection that the provider is recommending because they can see for themselves that this is an individual recommendation. This is their best statin based on their genetics. So it helps gain that trust between the doctor and the patient because Oftentimes, you know, it's not unusual to get frustrated when you've tried several different medications and have had several different side effects. You know, you grow frustrated. Sure. But this is one way to ease that frustration and make people feel more confident in the decisions that are being made because they are specifically for them as an individual. Yes. Upstate's HealthLink on Air has to take a short break, but we'll be back with more from Dr. Karen Albright and pharmacist Danielle Del Vecchio. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air with your host, Amber Smith. My guests are Dr. Karen Albright, an Associate Professor of Neurology and of Pharmacology, and Clinical Pharmacist Danielle Del Vecchio from the Department of Neurology. And our topic is the Pharmacogenomics Clinic at Upstate. With regard to antidepressants from the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor class, are, are you able to help reduce some of the unwanted side effects for people that take those medications? Yeah, that's a, another large group of patients that we have been helping out with. We have gotten referrals from both primary care physicians and those in the mental health world just for patients who have tried several different SSRIs or that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor class of medications. These are drugs that are used for anxiety and depression. And what we're taught in pharmacy school is that you can have, you know, seven different drugs within the SSRI class and a patient may respond well to one but not to the other. And it really does come down to trial and error. But what they don't kind of explain in detail is that the reason for that is because of pharmacogenomics and because of differences in drug metabolism for specific enzymes that break down these SSRIs. So what we can do with this pharmacogenomic information is rule out certain SSRIs that a patient may not respond to or may be more prone to side effects with, and then kind of categorize a list of priorities or a list of best medications to try first. And then we can also help explain to patients why they've had so many trial and error, so many issues with the SSRIs that they've tried. We can really help show them that this is why. It's not their fault. We understand that they were taking their medication correctly. They were adherent to their medication. There was nothing that they could do because it is solely based on their genetics. And that was the predetermining factor for why this drug didn't work for them. And I think that uh, we've learned, we didn't anticipate this, but once we help one person, they bring in other members of their family. We have one particular family where we have parents and all of their children as part of our clinic. And, and it's just to help them. The focus was antidepressants, but as we find with a lot of patients, once we get this detailed medication history, we find that we can help them with some of the other medications they take as well. 
Interesting. Well, so many people take medication for pain control. Um, what issues do you see among those patients? Um, I think when I think about pain, one story comes to mind. We had a, a patient who was admitted to an outside hospital, not our hospital here, for um, a hip replacement. And he had told the orthopedic surgeon that he could take only two medicines, um, NSAIDs, you know, sort of ibuprofen type medicines, and Dilaudid, a very strong painkiller. And since he was so specific, the orthopedic surgeon thought it was odd and strange. And he said, if you don't believe me, just call the pharmacogenomics clinic. So the surgeon called us and we explained, yes, that sounds very specific. However, what he's telling you is true. And so for him, he had a variation in an enzyme, well, a gene causing the enzyme to be different, called CYP2D6, 2 delta 6. And because of that, some of the medicines were just not as effective in him. So we took the long list of medicines, we crossed off the ones that were not effective, and, and he had another CYP2C9, which allowed him to take the NSAIDs. So we were able to tell her actually what he's saying is true. These are the medicines that we believe will work in him, and these are the medicines we believe will not work as well. So he got his medicines, got through rehab, and recovered from his surgery. And essentially how this all works is there are drugs that rely on these specific enzymes that we test for more than others. So there's a group of those strong pain medicines called opioids that rely on that CYP2D6 to be activated into their more um, effective version in the body that causes the best level of pain relief. There are other opioids that do not rely on that CYP2D6 to be effective. So that's how we advise patients on which drugs to avoid and which drugs to choose, or you know, tell their doctors to choose from when they need strong pain medicine, because the ones that rely on that enzyme that might not work for them, those were the ones that we would say, you know, probably don't pick these ones because you might not have that same pain relief, choose from this list of options. And the same, that's pretty much how the, the whole concept behind what we're doing works. And the other pain relievers, the NSAIDs, the ones that worked for that patient, we took care of a young woman whose brother was hospitalized in the UK after he took something very benign over the counter like ibuprofen. But it turns out that she and her brother share a genetic variation that says they are more prone to side effects from that group of medicines. So we were able to tell her not only should your brother avoid this, but you should avoid it. So people, because I know a lot of people out there who say, you know, I can't take this or that uh, for a headache because it just doesn't work for me. They're learning these things sort of by trial and error, but they could come to you and you could explain why or why not and give them some alternatives. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, what I tell every single patient that we see is that pharmacogenomics is one piece of the puzzle. It is not the 100% predictor of response to drug therapy. And I cannot ever tell you with 100% certainty how you will respond to a drug because there are many factors that go into drug response. And pharmacogenomics is just one part of that. So it is a helpful tool that clinicians can use in addition to what they're already using to help decide on drug therapy, but it's never going to be the 100% you know, predictive factor, but it is such a valuable tool and it provides so much additional information versus the way that typical prescribing takes place. I've interviewed um, several of your colleagues in the neurology department about um, epilepsy and seizure disorders, and I remember them saying it can be challenging to find the right medication that works for patients. So how can you help in that situation? So in terms of seizure medications and drugs used for epilepsy, we do test for a couple different, uh, I guess you would call genes that predict whether or not a patient will be at a higher risk of drug adverse reactions or hypersensitivity reactions is what they're called. And these specific genes are usually for two medications with the best level of evidence, carbamazepine and oxcarbazepine, and they're called the HLAs, so HLAA or HLAB. And there are certain variants in these HLAs that tell us if a patient's at a higher risk of these adverse reactions. 
and if we should avoid using these certain seizure medications in this patient because they have this positive variant in their HLA. So essentially in terms of seizure medications, that's one way that we can help is try and avoid this group of medicines because you're at a higher risk of side effects. There are other seizure medica medications like phenytoin or dilantin that we also test for a drug metabolizing enzyme for. And we use that result in combination with the HLA result to optimize if a patient is going to be on phenytoin, what dose to use, or if they should avoid it altogether. And, and there are certainly patients who are taking medications in this class for other disease states, like trigeminal neuralgia, migraine. So, um, you know, this applies to the medication, but that medication might be used for multiple diseases. The medicines that people take to relieve acid reflux and ulcers, um, the proton pump inhibitors, what are the challenges of these medications that you see? Well, I, I want to return to a patient story before, before Daniel dives into this question, but these medicines are tricky. So they can also, not only in our clinic, do we do what we call drug gene interactions, which is how you with your genotype will react to a drug, but sometimes we can have drug drug gene interactions, and we can see this with these PPIs. So essentially this group of drugs, proton pump inhibitors, omeprazole, pantoprazole, they're one of the most commonly used medications in, you know, just clinical practice for heart acid reflux, GERD, those types of things. They're not benign drugs by any means. They do have side effects associated with long-term use. So in general, we want to make sure patients are minimizing how long they need to use them for. But oftentimes patients do need them chronically and you know for life and they can't be without them. And then on you know the other side of that, we want to make sure that the drug's actually working and they're not just taking a drug and it's you know not doing what it's supposed to do. So the gene that we test for looks at the proton pump inhibitors. And if you're a poor metabolizer, that means that you should probably be taking a dose on the lower end of the dosage range to avoid additional side effects. If you're a rapid metabolizer, you might actually need double the dose. Should you kind of cut back on your dose and see how you do if you get the same relief with a, a you know, that dose being cut in half? Or should we recommend that you even increase it? And is, is that why you're not achieving any benefit from the medicine? So that's what we're able to advise on with that group of drugs. And, and I would just add one more thing. You know, pharmacists have always been keeping patients safe by checking for drug-drug interactions. But what Danielle is doing in this clinic is just one more layer. She's checking for drug-drug gene interactions. And PPIs are a great example. Um, one of our very first patients in this clinic was on clopidogrel or Plavix, also on a PPI, and also had a CYP2C19 variant. So those three things together is very different than just having two of them. So how long has pharmacogenomics been available to patients? I mean, it's, this has kind of been a scientific theory for a long time, but when did it come to the patient's bedside? Well, I think it's different um, in every state. Um, I know Danielle and I have tried to reach out to our colleagues in New York State, and 20 of them are doing research but I'm not aware of any other clinics in this, particularly this part of the state, and um, maybe in the city there might be one more, um, but we just opened in January of 2020. And, um, you know, like, like physicians do and scientists do, we, we tested it on ourselves first. Then once we had our procedures down and we knew we could trust the results, we opened the doors to, to help patients. And the field of pharmacogenomics has been around for decades and the whole concept behind it and yeah, and using pharmacogenomic information to apply to drug therapy has been around for years and years. I do believe it is becoming more popular in recent years as patients are themselves learning about it and providers are also learning about it and the benefit that it can have on patient care. And along those same lines, new data becomes available every year. So the more data, the more patients that we can help because we can apply that information to more patients. So, you know, every every year we get more information to add to this real, essentially a bank of information to apply to our patients. 
Is this something that you're finding health insurers will pay for? Can patients uh, get access to this easily? Yeah, we've been very lucky in terms of the patients that we've seen in our clinic and the majority of them we've had no issues in terms of coverage. And I think that that speaks to how the popularity of pharmacogenomics is growing. Insurers are understanding the benefits, especially with you know the FDA support with pharmacogenomic testing. So insurers are catching on to those benefits and we've been you know, very lucky in terms of the fact that our patients have been able to get their testing done without any issue. Well, before we wrap up, I wanna ask each of you, um, just this whole idea of the pharmacogenomics clinic, is this where medicine is headed? Do you think that more patients are gonna undergo genetic testing to help doctors decide the best way to treat them in the future? I mean, I think it's it's one of those things that has a very low risk. It doesn't harm patients and it does help them. So uh, to me, it would seem foolish to not use a tool that could help people and it doesn't harm them. I think it is definitely something that will continue to grow, especially as the information on pharmacogenomics yes. gets shared. I think one of the issues with it not being, you know, as widely used is just from a lack of understanding, lack of understanding on how to use the genetic information, lack of understanding on if the information that's available is, you know, strong enough to apply to patients in clinical practice. So that's where things like this come into play is getting the word out and sharing what we do and sharing the benefits of what we do and sharing the fact that there is guidelines, you know, to yeah. help us guide drug therapy based on pharmacogenomic information. The data is there, the evidence is strong, and we know that it can be beneficial both scientifically and clinically. We have had some primary care physicians who've been a little reluctant. We had someone who uh, told us he did medical school in the pre-genome era. And um, to those people, I would say, don't worry, we'll do, you know, we'll get the information we need. We will test the patients, we will interpret the results. You know, we're here to help. We're consultants. We're trying to help. We wouldn't expect a referring doctor to interpret, you know, 40-some pages of, of genetic output. We'll do that. Good point. Well, thank you both for taking the time to tell us about the pharmacogenomics clinic at Upstate. My guests have been Dr. Karen Albright, an associate professor of neurology and of pharmacology, and clinical pharmacist Danielle Del Vecchio from the Department of Neurology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. What is vestibular therapy? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A variety of conditions can lead to dizziness, and some people with dizziness may benefit from vestibular therapy. Today, I'm speaking with Rena Flyto and Maria Podbelski. They're both doctors of physical therapy and also vestibular therapists who focus much of their work on patients with dizziness or balance disorders. Thank you for making time for this interview, both of you. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for having us. Well, I'm anxious for you to talk about what a vestibular therapist does, but first, can you tell us what are some of the most common reasons people may see a vestibular therapist? Sure. People come to see a vestibular therapist when they have dizziness. Could be balance challenges, but it can also be visual changes related to a dysfunction somewhere in the vestibular system. So we commonly see people who have uh, positional vertigo, which is often called BPPV, um, could be stroke, head trauma, and that includes concussion, Amber, a brain tumor, migraine, but also inner ear infections. We also see some less common conditions, though, which might include severe vitamin deficiency, vertigo associated with anxiety, and even post-COVID-19. So these, this is a short list. So what you mentioned vertigo, is, is that the same thing as dizziness, or is there some distinction? Um, there is. Vertigo is a, a sensation of movement. It's often described as spinning or even swaying. 
and it can be the sensation of the room moving when it's not, or it can be the sensation that you're moving when you're not. And what causes this sensation, Amber, is complicated unless you're a wizard physics, but simply the inner ear senses and measures head motion and gravity. And it sends that information to the brain and the central nervous system. And then the brain kind of analyzes this information and makes quick adjustments to our eye motion and our muscles in the body to help us keep balanced, but also to keep our vision focused when we were moving our head. Now the brain is happy, Amber, when both ears are functioning the same. But let's say you have an ear infection on the left side. Electrical activity in that ear is not going to match the healthy ear. And the brain is going to interpret that difference as rapid head movement and voila, you have vertigo. Now, what about, I know people that maybe are prone to low blood pressure or low blood sugar. I know they may feel dizzy from time to time. Is vestibular therapy designed for that patient as well? No, you know, those are definitely medical conditions that the doctor would, would address, but we may evaluate, I may evaluate a patient who has, um, dizziness and I may determine that it's not their inner ear, that it's actually kind of a fluctuating blood pressure problem. And I would definitely, you know, send that patient back to their physician. Well, I imagine that dizziness can make a person more prone to falls. So um, what other problems might be secondary if someone has a vestibular disorder? Maria? Yeah, a vestibular disorder can lead to all sorts of secondary symptoms. And some of these may include nausea, vomiting. There can be vision changes and difficulty tracking um, items in front of you, watching TV, um, looking at your phone. And it can also lead to just a decrease in overall activity. Um, and that leads to deconditioning. And we also commonly see some social isolation because some people don't want to go out because dizziness can be very uncomfortable. Um, this can sometimes lead into psychological changes, which can include depression as well as anxiety about when a dizzy attack may happen next. Well, let's talk then about what a vestibular therapist does and how you're able to help these people. Sure, a, uh, a vestibular therapist performs evaluations and treatments of patients with dizziness, like Rena had said. This really starts with subjective information that's collected, um, including very much a description of what the dizziness feels like. The description of the dizziness can provide very valuable information on the cause of dizziness. Then the therapist will examine your eye movements, evaluate dizziness with head motions, test the individual canals of the vestibular system to evaluate for positional vertigo. And these are called the Dix Hall type and the Roll tests. We also perform balance testing. During the evaluation, a vestibular therapist uses infrared video goggles, and that um, helps to assist in the differential diagnosis between central and peripheral vestibular disorders. The goggles create dark environments for the patient while projecting a video of the eyes onto a computer screen. This prevents the patient from be, being able to fixate their eyes and allows the therapist to see any abnormal eye movements, which really cue us in to the potential source of the problem. And based on the outcome of the examination, a plan of care is developed um, with really specific vestibular exercises. And these exercises include canal repositioning techniques, habituation exercises, gaze stabilization, general balance or conditioning exercises, or even neck exercises. And really every treatment plan is very unique to that person. That's what it sounds like. But I, I do want to ask you first, is the therapy painful or uncomfortable for the patient? No, um, of course, Amber, uh, nausea and vertigo are very uncomfortable <laughs> symptoms right. to have. And, um, you know, certainly the evaluation and the treatment may make a person more dizzy, but that that is designed to do so. And it, it's that kind of trigger and, and, and of dizziness that helps the brain to make a change. Um, so yes, there is that element, but, um, and also, you know, some people have arthritis or chronic back pain, and we have to accommodate that when we're doing our exercises so that we don't make that worse. If dizziness is not treated, um, is will it get better on its own or is there a risk that it will get worse? I mean, is this something that can be serious and needs to be dealt with? 
Yes, you know, some conditions uh, can get better on their own. It may take some time. And, and the most common one we see, which is the positional vertigo, you know, often will, will resolve itself. Um, but dizziness can change over time. It, it, our perception of dizziness can change. And it, it's a little more difficult sometimes when the brain gets stuck in that, in that scenario to make the changes to, to make you feel better. Um, so it, it is better to address it. Well, is there any benefit to getting into vestibular therapy sooner rather than later um, as soon as you start having symptoms? Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, when your doctor feels you're ready um, to start, it is best to start your therapy sooner than later. You know, early on, Amber, your memory, our memory of, like Maria said, um, what did it feel like the first time you were dizzy? Um, how long did it last? What triggered it? Those, that information is so helpful in determining a diagnosis. But over time, as I said, those symptoms change and they become chronic and our memory isn't as good over time. And, and also, you're going to have balance issues, so you're at risk for falling. So it's much better to get started sooner. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with two physical therapists who are also vestibular therapists at Upstate, Rena Flato and Maria Podbelski. I want to ask about what a patient can expect at their first appointment. Um, how should they dress, for instance, and is there anything they need to bring with them? At the first appointment, the, the first thing you can expect to do um, is to describe your dizziness. This can be very hard for patients. So really keeping a small diary of symptoms and activities that worsen or improve the, the symptoms. Um, you wanna dress comfortably. You wanna wear clothes and shoes that you can easily move around in. You wanna bring glasses if you wear them. Also a list of current medications can be very helpful. Um, you wanna remember that your initial assessment may cause some nausea. So just having a light meal prior to going um, is, is more beneficial for you. Um, you want to expect that these, this assessment may provoke the dizzy symptoms, but this information that's gathered is necessary to come up with a specific treatment plan. You as a patient should expect to be sent home with some answers to why your dizziness may be occurring, as well as some initial homework to start to address the underlying causes, which will be very helpful in moving forward. Do you suggest that people bring um, a spouse or caregiver or friend with them to the appointment? Yes, um, yes, we advise people to have a support person come to at least the initial appointment. Um, we want them to have a safe ride home in case you're feeling dizzy, but also having a support person while going un undergoing vestibular therapy can be very helpful. Um, to have a cheerleader at home and someone to talk to Having compliance and perseverance with the home exercise program is really important piece to, to getting better and having that support person can be very important in your recovery. How soon do you think someone can expect to see some relief after they start, you know, the therapy? You know, some people, Amber, will see immediate um, benefit and, and typically that might be the positional vertigo where we diagnose uh, where the problem is. We do a quick head maneuver that might take five minutes and, and they may feel better. And then, you know, of course, in more complicated cases or cases that have, are chronic um, may take, you know, longer. And of course, if there is a situation where there's a severe medical condition or a severe injury, you know, like a traumatic brain injury, um, you know, some people are, are probably not going to see 100% change. Are there factors or anything that people can do on their own to help their recovery outside of doing the homework and the, and the exercises? Are there other factors that influence how well that's going to be tolerated? Um, as Maria said, you know, um, compliance with that home exercise program is critical. But when you look at the, the balance system as a whole, it involves your vision, your hearing, your sensation, and there are a lot of medical conditions that can affect those sensations negatively. So really keeping good eye health and wellness and nutrition, those are all key to keeping that whole system healthy. I think overall general movement and mobility throughout the day is very important on keeping a healthy vestibular system. 
Um, oftentimes, uh, if we're in the house all day and not moving around, all of our systems are generally going to just lessen because we don't need to use them. And our brain is really designed to be active and to train in what, in what we're doing. So overall general mobility and being in different environments, moving around throughout the day is gonna maintain a healthy vestibular system. Can you do anything for people who take important medications that are causing them a balance issue? I mean, yes. they still need to take the medicine because it's right. important, but so what, what can right. they do? Um, and as Maria said, bring your medication list with you that first session, um, assuming the physician has made, you know, any possible adjustments to the medication list, a therapist would, would do their evaluation um, to determine if balance exercises would be helpful, but also to provide strategies that might reduce fall risk. This could be use of a cane or a walker. It might include tips for fall prevention and home safety, use of good lighting. Um, we can also address footwear and ensure, you know, that the patient has the uh, up-to-date um, prescription for their lenses. Is vestibular therapy something that requires a referral from a physician? Or how would a listener, if, if someone's listening to this and they think they could be helped by this, how would they connect or get an appointment? with a vestibular therapist? Sure, here at, here at Upstate, we do require a physician's referral for any of our therapy services. This referral can come from your primary care doctor, a neurologist, an ENT, anyone who's who you're talking to about your dizziness. And to make an appointment here at Upstate, we have a phone number. It's 315-464-6543. Our primary outpatient vestibular clinic is located at the Institute of Human Performance, which is at 505 Irving Ave. But we have therapists that work in all of our satellites. Um, if you visit our website at upstate.edu and search vestibular in the search box, this will lead you directly to our um, therapy page, which has all this information um, listed there as well. Thank you both for making time to tell us about vestibular therapy. My guests have been Doctors of Physical Therapy, Rena Flato and Maria Podbelski. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Dr. Mickey Kalish is an assistant professor of surgery specializing in pediatrics at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. How would you advise parents to help prepare a child for surgery? I find that kids are pretty intuitive, even if they're not yet speaking. And so I think that being honest with kids is probably the most important thing. And I would try to caution parents not to avoid talk about the surgery. It's usually more stressful for the patient if they don't find out that they're having surgery until the day of the actual procedure. Um, the other thing is that routines are comforting. And so I suggest that you try to stick to usual routines when you have dinner, when you go to bed, because if the child senses things are off or that mom or, and dad are nervous, then it can sometimes feed into their own anxiety. Um, and then for older kids, it's good to encourage them to talk about the procedures and to ask questions because if, if they feel like mom and dad are reluctant to talk about it, again, it, may, it might make the, the child themselves a little more nervous. Thank you, pediatric surgeon, Dr. Mickey Kalish from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital in Syracuse. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Nat Mulkey is a fourth-year medical student at Boston University's School of Medicine. Nat is absorbing a similar lesson from a patient and shows a real willingness to listen and learn. Here is Letter Concerning My Patient's Feet. Dear patient, I know you saw my hesitation when you asked for socks. I looked at your feet. They were cracked and yellow, tense cold skin pulled over worn bones, the nails long and curled with an abundance of material underneath. Transparently, my face probably displayed the word in my mind, gross. I have thought a lot about your feet since then. You asked the physician to take a look under your socks. Something in your big toe aches and oozes. His bare fingers yank off your sock and pieces of skin fall to the side as the doctor gently touches your wounded toe. It bleeds. I am not a Christian, but I am familiar with the story. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. This son of God, prophet, king, 
took dirty feet in his bare hands and scrubbed. Skin falls into gray water, which his hands enter over and over again to complete the task. His fingers move between your toes and sandy dirt gives way. Your feet have a history they eagerly want to tell me. They have painstakingly carried a load every day, making sure to keep it balanced. They are flexible too and can bend their load ever so softly, ensuring all remains upright. Some days are heavier than others. Quick, oh boy, they have been. Ran miles and miles back in the day, faster than any of those other feet. But it was more than what they could do. Look at us, they said. We are unarguably elegant. Our nails have been decorated with shiny polish and matted clay. Our ankle has donned everything from a small beaded chain to skin indentations from fresh socks. Mom grabbed us when we were small and new, held our toes to her lips and kissed each one. A lover's warm palms have pushed the muscles to release. We have been called cute. I am sorry I did not listen to your feet when we first met and decided they're worth so quickly. But their story has imprinted on me, and I stand in their shadow, waiting to wash them. Best, Nat Mulkey. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a critical care pulmonologist describes the effect of COVID-19 on the lungs. To hear more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.